Hello and welcome back to Acts of Pod. I'm your host, Brandon Shu, and today in a true social distancing uh, approved methodology here, we're here with uh, Zachary Finn, who is a clinical professor and the director at Davy Risk Management and Insurance Program at Butler University. Zach or Zachary, what do you, uh, what's the uh, go-to? Well, if I'm in trouble with my wife or mom, it's Zachary. Uh, if it's everything else, it's Zach. So we'll assume it's Zach right now. All right, we'll stick with Zach. Zach, thanks for being on Axapod. I appreciate you being here today. I know you're a very busy person in the last uh, couple months here. Yeah, I actually hadn't intended to be this busy, but when the opportunity to serve kind of presented itself, I jumped onto it, maybe just to stay busy. But yeah, I've been on a little bit of an adventure here over the last few weeks. Well, so why don't you tell us what you're doing? Uh, from everything I gather, it's a real ground-up grassroots collaboration with your students and uh, an idea that sounds like came from them. Tell us how, how all of this started. Just a little bit about me. I, I got insurance and risk management degree in 2000 and a master's degree in risk and insurance in 2007 and a couple designations to boot. And then I worked as a risk manager. So one of the things that it's important to understand about a risk manager is we really see and work with all the industries. So when I have a claim, I'm adjusting it as well as the adjuster is trying to understand what the outcome is going to be. When I'm having lines of insurance underwritten, I'm trying to underwrite it. Not only that, but when the insurance markets don't work anymore, I'm the one left holding the bag. So if I have a $600 million flood exposure in New Orleans and there's only $50 million worth of insurance in the planet that I can get, well, the insurance industry is done. They go home and I have to sit there and figure out where we're going to get that other $550 million. And so risk managers learn tricks that if you're an insurance carrier and you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, as a risk manager, we know some tricks that maybe some insurance carriers don't know about captive insurance companies and the ability to create insurance and, and use captives as a way to monetize risk and to access reinsurance and to frankly do some interesting things that maybe the industry isn't aware can be done. And so, for example, I worked for the National Cash Register Company during Y2K and sat in a room where they talked about money shooting out of ATMs and do we want that to be insured? And if so, do we want to write the policy? Do we want someone else to write the policy? How does that work from contract of adhesions? And I even saw them reform the coverage after the fact, after you know we had the policy issued and it didn't seem like it was going to worked the way that we intended, we actually went back and reformed it. And that kind of stuck with me. And obviously, I've seen coverage liberalized midterm and taken back retroactively at different points in my career. I had a $15 million inventory claim in an exposed warehouse from a tornado where the insurer and, and the health inspector and I all agreed that because it was dirty, it was damaged. And so I know things like if you've settled a claim as an insurer for something that was dirty and you've equated that to property damage, that may leave the back door open to Dire Garofalo, Man, and Schultz to come at you with the tiger and try and get that coverage litigation going. I had my senior leadership sign off on pandemic insurance and pandemic risk as back far back as 2010. Now, maybe that's not a reasonable duty for, you know, I had an insurance license in Indiana. They didn't cover it, uh, uh, pandemics or pandemic risk. And when you look at things like risk genius and 80% of policies don't have pandemic coverage, you're going to start to see that I think the 20% that do have coverage are probably going to be people with insurance degrees like myself. Uh, members of Gamma Out of Sigma that are, are disciplines in insurance. And so, you know, if you're an agent broker advising the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, you know, you might have a duty or had a duty at some point to better advise your clients about this so that they knew that this wasn't covered. Whether that applies to an agent or not is really going to depend on the size of clients that they had, the level of sophistication of the clients, the level of sophistication of the agent. And, and again, I don't think it's fair for any trial lawyers at all to go after America's retail agents. That's just not fair. They, I've had an agent, a license. It didn't cover pandemic insurance. You know, if you're insuring 
restaurants or even you know middle market manufacturing firms, it's probably not reasonable that you would have had the chance to know to advise your clients that. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think going back and providing that opportunity through TRIA retroactively is frankly the fair thing to do. For 20% of the economy, maybe they had their chance. Maybe their agent should have advised them better. Maybe they should have had a risk manager or better understood their business interruption values. But for 80% of the economy that the insurance licensor system has let them down, maybe a do-over is, is in order. So those experiences for me, and I've worked as an agent, I've run an insurance company. I, I'm a chief risk officer and chief operating officer for the world's only student-run insurance company right now, a real insurance company. I've been a risk manager. I've been a risk manager student. I've been a risk manager professor. So I cover more angles, I think, than most people. And I've spent more time than most people thinking about the industry in different ways. So I don't think about risk the way normal people do. That's good and bad, personally and professionally. I think mainly good professionally, probably a little sad personally, but what are you going to do? I think having a niche is always good. That's how I view the world. And so I was at Disney World as recently. I mean, I I like to say March 8th or 9th, but every day in March felt like, you know, six months. Um, In fact, my hair is grayer at the end of the month than it was. I was at Disney World. I didn't understand the virality of, you know, this disease, how contagious it was, how long it stays on surfaces. I think that folks that would want to give the president a hard time or other people a hard time about this, I think I don't think people widely understood, you know, how this virus was going to work. And so I, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. I was at Disney World probably at a time when I shouldn't have been. Kind of glad I did. It was a wonderful experience. My son got to go solo when he was about five or six. And my daughter Katie and I did the same thing. We actually stayed with my old boss, the risk manager, retired risk manager of Hillrom. Talked a little bit about the pandemic and insurance. And he's a great risk Jedi master, just like some of the other bosses and folks I've worked for. And and so when I got back, I got a call from the Indianapolis Business Journal. And they asked me about if the NCA cancels, what does that mean in Indianapolis? And my answer was, geez, we're in a lot of trouble. You could argue whether the NCA is insured or not. I know their risk manager. He's a pretty smart guy. We'll leave it at that. But when you start to look at all the businesses that are dependent on the NCA, they're not covered. You can start to think about the domino effect of business interruption, right? If the NCA was down because uh, bankers like Fieldhouse or whatever was on fire, there wouldn't be an issue. Those businesses would be making the money they would have made, paying the expenses they would have had, and including their payroll, and the economy would continue to move forward. But because that didn't happen because of a fire, because it's shut down because of a pandemic, they have no coverage. Well, the university, frankly, has no coverage. And when you, you know, I come in, so I come in, so I answer to the Indianapolis Business Journal, like basically there's going to be big trouble. This is going to ripple through the economy like contagion, the economic damage from all this, and it's going to disrupt the economy. The risk velocity for business interruption is much, much faster than coronavirus. I mean, I know coronavirus is spreading. we got to social distance, but business interruption, contingent business interruption moves much, much faster than people realize. The amount of economic damage and social unrest and suicides and spousal abuse and all the things that can fester during extended social distancing, there will come a point, point. I'm not the person to say that, I'm not a doctor, but there will come a point when the medicine is worse than the actual disease. And so you have to look at the total cost of risk. There are lives saved by social distancing, but there's not a net mortality gain, right? Every life that is saved through social distancing, there was a suicide somewhere, maybe, maybe a domestic violence, maybe something else, maybe reduced domestic violence, maybe it's even better. Maybe we're getting a climate change boost. But the point is, is we're not, and, and maybe now it's too late for that for this time. But these are the kind of questions that we need to make sure we understand for next time. What's the net, the total cost of risk of what it is we're doing? And what I immediately understood, particularly when the next day when I come in, President James Danko sends out the batten down the hatches memo for Butler University. We're going to suspend hiring. We're going to spend construction. We're going to spend renovation. We're going to suspend everything. And you start to think, okay, well, what are those businesses going to do? And even, you know, the news, right? When was the last time you saw a cruise or an airline commercial? What are they going to do? 
and you, you can just see it rippling. And so, you know, you fast forward a week and now all of a sudden you've got what, 10 million jobs lost. The people I know are losing their jobs. So what are they going to do? Stop spending. What are their firms going to do? Stop spending. And so you can't bail out the country faster than business interruption risk moves. That's the problem is the Congress and the financial markets are trying to treat this like a capital problem, like a financial market. Problem. It's not. It is just the world's largest business interruption claim, just period. That's all it is. And you have to adjust it just like a business interruption claim. And I, I use this example. Whoever's listening to this now, however many houses are in your neighborhood, unless you're super rich and you live all by yourself, but for the rest of us who live in big neighborhoods with other people, say a tornado hits my neighborhood tonight, 50 homes in the neighborhood. My house is damaged. My neighbor's house is leveled. My other neighbor's house is damaged, but you know, maybe he's a drunk and doesn't do his maintenance. And so what's fair, right? Should, should everybody get the same check or no check? And, and why should you know, regardless of your politics, McConnell or, or Pelosi, either one of them decide what my, my neighbors need when they've never met me. They don't know me and they don't know what my damages are. It doesn't make any sense at all. And, and that's what you see happening. So Butler University, for example, will receive up to $2.6 million of aid under the CARE Act. Here's the problem. We're already out 5 to $6 million in room and board. That doesn't include clues events or summer camps or the basketball season. We're prepared. What do you think is going to happen to enrollment when 10 million people just got laid off. Do you think all those people are going to come to Butler or Indiana State or Florida State or insert your alma mater here? You know, for all of you that have a college or university that you love, how are they going to survive in a world where the Chronicle of Higher Education says one out of six students may never come back? How does that ripple through the economy and change our educational system and our competitiveness in the world? I mean, there are ramifications here that people don't understand. And so for Butler University, if that worst case enrollment scenario happens, and by the way, I don't think it will, but if it did, you're looking at almost $40 million of losses. We're going to put on a whole show of academics with 20% less revenue than what we had. That makes no economic sense. Let's inform our audience, I guess, why a trio like coverage is better than what we have today. I, I want to just back up a little bit. You, you mentioned uh, earlier when, we, when you were talking about how agents may or may not have had a obligation to tell their insureds about the fact that they're not insured for pandemics. Now, from a BI perspective, there there doesn't appear to be any coverage out there for Oh, there is. For I, I, looked, I had a quote for pandemic insurance as far back as 2010. There had been only one policy written at the time. The premium was $1 million for a limit of 25 So no sane person would have bought it, by the way. I'm not saying... Just because it exists, it had to be purchased. That's not that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I would highly recommend you not purchase it. I would actually handle the captive in a whole other series of ways. But but the point remains, as a risk manager, you have a duty to your company to say this exists and what do you think of it and, and to get their reaction. And and by the way, there is pandemic insurance. I know people who have covered losses right now. You know, you think about all, you know, we'll generalize it, they cross all professional sports and entertainment for and amateur sports. For events, yeah, they have it. And for business yeah. interruption too, by the way, FM Global Advantage Form has it. Uh, if you manuscript it, you'd have it. So what you would do, for example, is if you had this pandemic exposure and you were a risk manager, you would probably scour Lloyd's of London or Bermuda or the different international markets. Or what you would do is you'd create a specialized program in your captive insurance company, and then you'd manuscript coverage through various insurers or reinsurers. Or if you wanted to, frankly, you'd go to Renaissance Re and create an insurance link security and stick it out to Wall Street. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. And that's my point. You know, for the people who don't even know what I'm talking about, it's hard to explain. You wouldn't go out and be an accountant without an accounting degree. And I think one of the takeaways from this, I mean, again, it's anybody has an insurance license, there's a lot of great folks out there that have great designations and experiences and other degrees. Mm -hmm. And because of how diverse insurance is, I don't want to give the impression that this is the only path or the only way to be a great agent. That's absolutely not true. I've learned some of the most 
insurance risk management things ever from, you know, people like Colin McNabb at MJ Insurance. I think Colin has a philosophy degree or something. He's one of the most knowledgeable insurance people I know. My point is, is in this economy and in this world of now we know, now we know we really need these people. Colin's path to becoming Colin McNabb was a lot longer than my path to becoming Zach Finn because I had dedicated degrees and experiences and trainings that, you know, maybe weren't available to him, or maybe he had other things that were more relevant before everybody was grounded on a pandemic. But now in this new world, you need more people like me a lot faster and a lot more of them. And so that, that's kind of maybe the big shift that's happened is, is maybe, you know, maybe that duty didn't exist before, but it does now. Well, so let's talk about how the proposal would work both retroactively, well, if there's an opportunity for retroactively, which is obviously the much more pertinent or germane worry is going back and covering these losses. Right. Obviously going forward is important, but if we're worried about well, going well, forward, we might have no, nothing, to, nothing to ensure. So what well, can we I, do going back? Well, and this gets back to the tornado examples on. I kind of warned you, I know it's like drinking from a fire hose, but you know, if you go back to that, everyone in your neighborhood has a tornado, what they're doing right now is they're throwing bailouts. Butler, like I say, Butler is getting a bailout that doesn't match our actual losses. They're throwing money at it, but it's, this is an insurance market problem. We have to turn the market for business interruption and, and event and cancellation insurance back on. No one can operate any, with any level of certainty without that insurance. And, and those 20% of risk managers or companies that were able to buy it before, I mean, I've heard of risk managers that had endorsements that said they would get a guaranteed renewal if there was a pandemic for things like property or DNO. I mean, those kind of things exist, but that's not going to exist anymore. So the idea that we're going to need a pandemic risk insurance act go forward is a, is a no-brainer. This is Spanish flu, and it happens again next year. We're all quarantined next year. I mean, most of higher ed will be bankrupt. Ortho Indy that does all the physical therapy work around here, they, they're saying if they're not up and running by July, they're bankrupt. So go forward, you have to do it. Now, going backwards, you know, go back to that tornado claim. Right now, Congress is sending out bailout after bailout, just kind of guessing what you and your neighbors need after a tornado. And what I'm saying is don't do that. Just trigger TRIA. Right. We may find out this was terrorism anyway. I mean, imagine that. Imagine we deny this as pandemic claims and we spend three years doing litigation or whatever it is. And then it comes out that it was terrorism anyway. I mean, what does that do? You have to undo all that litigation and then re-trigger TRIA? That's insane. What if, you know, I don't want to get all conspiratorial on you, but what if that's actually the plan? What if the plan is to release a pandemic and then let us all get scrolled around about that and then say, voila, it was terrorism. And so if we just trigger TRIA, it doesn't matter. It's as simple as this. As I tell my 12-year-old son. Take the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, you get a Sharpie marker. Wherever it says terrorism, you put dash pandemic, you backdate the coverage to before the coronavirus, and then you retroactively offer it to anybody who didn't buy it before. Maybe at three times the price or something to acknowledge that they should have bought it before. But doing that does a number of a magical, wonderful things. One, it's good for TRIA overall because we don't buy it in Indiana. We don't have terrorism risk in Indiana, and in particularly a place like Baseball Casket Company or like that where I used to work, we didn't buy TRIA. If everyone now has to buy terrorism coverage in order to get pandemic coverage, more people are kicking in. And the people who have heretofore been paying most of the cost of TRIA should see actually a reduction in their cost because now people in Indiana and North Dakota that would never have bought it before will buy TRIA. And not only that, but we'll have money set aside for pandemics and terrorism for hopefully what is one event. Maybe want to go back to my students' original idea. Why couldn't there be a black swan cyber shutdown of America where they originally came up with the idea for a cyber risk insurance act, that could happen. So why not kick in for a backstop for cyber pandemics and terrorism? And, and maybe maybe the premium ends up costing you know 2.5 nightmares, but we can fund three nightmares more efficiently, right? You kind of get the idea of how pooling and bringing those risks together might make it more efficient. So that, that's just a more efficient backstop. But what it all also does is it immediately turns off business disruption coverage. 
So if you go back to Butler and you say, we'll just use Butler as an example. You say, Butler, look, you can now go back to your previous renewal back to June 1, and we, you didn't elect TRIA, you can now elect it, and we're going to throw in pandemic coverage and it costs you more. Maybe that should be a deductible, whatever. You got it now. Now what happens? Now that 5 to $6 million lost room and board, boom, covered. Loss of revenue from clues and basketball, covered. Extended period of indemnity for lost enrollment, potentially covered, depending on how you structure it. Other things that are covered, payroll, Okay, so Ortho Indy, right? They're not going to go bankrupt if they're not back up and running July. No, nope, not anymore. Business interruption coverage, right? It's like back to the future too. You go back in time and you turn on pandemic insurance, you change the timeline. This, this future where everybody's not insured doesn't even have to happen. You just go back and turn it on. And what it does is when you give Ortho Indy business interruption coverage, you don't have Congress folks guessing what Ortho Indy needs. How the hell would they know? You set, you do adjust their claim. You don't even have to do it with an adjuster. You, you talk to the airlines that are helping me with this. They use like an agreed value whenever a flight's canceled. So maybe you go back to every single business's tax return and you say, we're going to give you 30% of your revenue from your tax return last year. And then we're going to true you up on next year's taxes. And if you need a little more, you get a little more. If you got more than you deserve and you know you got more than you deserve and set it aside because we're going to come back for it. And you adjust it just like that. It's the simplest thing in the world. And then what that does is it puts money in Ortho Indy's hands exactly how their losses are. We're not guessing. It's, it's a business disruption claim. It's based on your revenue. And then you have revenue, so now you can pay payroll. And now my friends don't have to worry about their jobs, and I don't have to see them on Facebook talk about buying guns and things, right? We can start to calm down a little bit. And what it does is it takes all, you know, risk it, loss is loss. This pandemic happened. Whatever the losses are going to be, they're going to be, right? It's like, it's like air in a balloon. You can't get rid of it. You can only push it around. And if you push the air too far in one direction, you're going to blow the balloon up. And that's what's happening. All the air is weighing down businesses and Americans, and it's crushing them. And so what you need the insurance industry to do is understand that if they activate TRIA, that'll put immediate money into the market immediately in the right place in the right way, in a way people understand too, by the way. I don't think you can go around calling this a 9-11 lightly. If you're going to say 9-11, then you better never forget. And that means you'll never forget a lot of things, including the solutions we already established with TRIA. If we all decided that TRIA was the answer after 9-11, why would we disrespect the victims of 9-11 and waste precious times and lives recreating the wheel when we could look to what we did for our friends after terrorism and use it again? You get value from the solution we already did. That makes the lives lost at 9-11, their sacrifice even bad. Like, it was a terrible sacrifice, but it, made it, it makes it worth more. It makes it more for good because we took something that came out of this that helped with terrorism and we reused it for pandemics. Right, it gives their sacrifice even new meaning. Even they're, they're helping us again from the past with something we already did that was bipartisanly re-supported year after year, right, time after time. So you don't have to recreate this wheel. I sit next to the Indiana Small Development Commission. Nobody knows how these small business loans are working, and they don't even know what to tell them. The guidance is changing every five seconds. So we're creating all these new programs, all this new oversight for what? Tria was already created. Just cross out terrorism. Right pandemic, have the Secretary of the Treasury declare it, push the button, pay the money. And everybody will understand exactly how it will pay because TRIA, we already had it, we already debated it, we already bipartisanly reauthorized it time and time again. And then what does everybody hate right now? Uncertainty. So what does that do? It's certainty. Certainty in payments, certainty in mechanisms, certainty in structure, certainty in, in funds. And I'll tell you what it also does. It gets rid of all the litigation. What's the distribution of funding here then? I mean, how, is the ins- is it all federal government money or is it insurance money? I mean, how, do, how does that delineate? Well this, well, this is where you get into 
people always want to say that. I mean, again, you don't have to decide that now, right? If you had a tornado hit your house, would you demand to know the damages now? No, you'd want a loss advance. You'd wait for it to be adjusted, and then you'd figure it out. And if you were depending on whether you were a landlord or had a free, free place to sleep or not, your losses would be different than my losses. And so if you look at how TRIA is structured now, I think it's like an 85% split with the government, and it would and it would result in the industry having to pay a lot of losses. But But what the industry has to consider is, are the losses that we're paying less than or greater than the litigation we're avoiding? How do we think that litigation or those legislators are going to treat us? We saw what happened after Katrina, wind versus flood. Well, that was just one region of the country, and that wasn't every policyholder. Every single policyholder in America has an uninsured BI claim right now. Every taxpayer, every voter. I mean, I, insurers argue with me about what's fair and what's right, and I tell them what my driver's ed told me. It's possible to be dead right. There's what's fair and there's what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is insurers are going to get sued. And we read these policies in class. Some of them are going to win. Some of them are going to lose. And it's going to be very, very expensive for a long time. You called out an interesting difference, at least in the way that I perceive this. You just said that every business owner has a BI claim right now. Do you think that... Yeah, uninsured. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think that that is the major difference, though, between a pandemic and a act of terrorism? I mean, obviously, when we're underwriting for TRIA and figuring out the cost or the individualized premium for any, any it's insurance, insurance industry's own damn, It's the insurance industry's own damn fault. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's their own damn fault. Because what is the face of the insurance industry? It's personalized insurance. Okay, go watch TV tonight and tell me how many commercials you see explain how business interruption works or what's insurable or not. I have sophomores in college that know how insurance works. Right. It should be taught in every business school in North America. That it's not means the university system is failing us. Right. The fact that the personal lines industry are the only ones that advertise and commercial line. I mean, I see the pork industry put up commercials. Pork is the other white meat is what's for dinner. I mean, why can't the commercial lines industry put out some advertising like, hey, you know, by the way, uh, pandemics ain't insured and you might want to know about that. I mean, there are certain tenets of insurability. It's just common sense. You and I both cannot go home tonight and have our house on fire for the same reason. It's just not possible but we're both stuck at home for the same pandemic. And so anything where we both could be having the same loss at the same time cannot be insured by a private entity. That's just the way it works. It's like trying to insure 65 year old adults or older. You can't do it unless you set up a backstop because whatever they'll take is more than they can ever pay in unless you pre-fund it. And that's just how this works. The fact that the insurance is you go home and you watch Progressive put on an show commercial where they barely even say the word insurance is their own damn fault. Geico, same thing. Nobody ever explained anything about insurance. The farmers does a good job, right? So all states, some of those commercials do an okay job, but most of these commercials are just nonsense because they don't want to bother to explain how insurance works. And universities don't want to bother to explain how insurance works because when you have bad finance, you know immediately. You have no money. When you have bad accounting, you know immediately. You're getting audited. When you have bad marketing, you can ask Peloton. You know immediately. When you have bad risk management, well, how many decades was Bill Cosby a national treasure until we found out he might have been America's most prolific rapist? That's how risk is. It's like a cancer that lives in the system until the day we're all grounded. Tom Hanks is sick. The economy's falling beneath our feet. Now we've all learned what happens when you don't have good risk management. And the sad thing is, is I've been warning people for decades that this was going to happen. If you don't treat, teach people about insurance, you don't teach people about risk management, there's going to be some kind of loss happens where nobody knows anything. And, it's, and all these people have blame in it. If the insurance industry is mad because everyone doesn't understand why they don't have pandemic insurance, maybe they should look back at their advertising since the beginning of time and ask if they ever even explained it. Because I can explain it to freshmen. I have no problem with it. I'll explain it to my 12-year-old. He gets it. It's, you can actually do it. I can, have, I can write a script from Flow that's funny and explains how insurance works. 
But you're going to sit here and tell all every single taxpayer and voter in America that we didn't bother explaining how insurance works. We secretly added in a bunch of pandemic exclusions, never told you, never advertised it, never agents, never trained agents to explain it to you. And now you're all screwed. And by the way, we paid a bunch of claims for stuff that was dirty in the past and there's no hand sanitizer. So, you know, how's that going to work out? And then, by the way, agents are going to get super E&O. And by the way, corporations, you can have DNO exposure. I mean, before I came to Smucker, they had an accountant rotating every two years. If you're a Fortune 500 company and you have an accountant buying your insurance, you have a DNO claim. There's no doubt about it. I'll, if I own shares in your company, I'll see you myself. And good luck up against me in court because that's the new standard now. If, you, if you're a Fortune 500 company and you don't have somebody who talks about risk like I do, you're done. Your DNO claim. That's it. It's, it's over. And so the only way you avoid that nightmare scenario is you turn pandemic insurance on in the past. Because if you turn it on for this, guess what happens? There's no coverage litigation. It's gone. It disappears. Imagine how pissed the trial lawyers would be. I'd be worth it just that. Agents, no E&O exposure. It's turned on in the past. That disappears. Risk managers, that D&O exposure disappears. The total cost of risk. TRIA was relatively inexpensive. So I assume with obviousness that there's not like a bunch of money sitting in a TRIA fund somewhere that could do this. So it's still the federal government finding a way to fund that then. It's money we have. I mean, I don't, have you been terrified at any point during this, Brandon? I have. TRIA was for terrorism. I've been terrified a couple of times. So sure. we were looking for money to pay for this. There's never going to be enough. And we have a pool of money sitting there that could be put to work in a way that it would flow through the economy counter to the way business interruption risk is flowing through the economy. So it would, it would have the effect of of calming those nerves. All of a sudden, people understand, oh, I have insurance. All these businesses understand how business disruption works. They're just pissed that pandemics don't apply to it. If you call them all up right now and say, hey, it's, it's, we turned it back on, they're gonna, you're going to hear a sigh so loud, you probably can hear it from your house. So if, like, oh. if somebody didn't buy TRIO, which, like you said, most people didn't, how does that process work going back and isolating a policy have, that would apply? And Well, so let's say I had... Uh, um, Let's say I had my own captive insurance company and I was providing, you know, some sort of employee benefit to my captives and I wanted to liberalize it to include pet insurance is a good example. I think Progressive did that. They had one year where if you had a progressive policy, they liberalized coverage to include pet insurance. Agents, however, they received news from Progressive, received the new notification like, hey, your insurance policies now cover you know, pets. And by the way, we made it, re- you know, I don't remember if they made it retroactive or not, but they could have because they're the insurer and do whatever they want. Same as federal government. So say they did make it retroactive. Say, hey, you know what? We're going to give you pet insurance. And if you had any pets that were injured, you know, in the beginning of your policy period, they're covered now too, back to the beginning of time. And so however agents would communicate, that would be exactly the way they would do this. I would imagine Gregory Nappel, the insurance agent for Butler University, would call up our risk manager, Austin Oldham, and say, Austin, we have permission now from uh, such and such an insurance company to go back and backdate coverage for TRIA for you. By the way, at a premium that the agent gets a commission on, ding, ding. Right. This is not a lose. This is every agent in America now going to have a new transaction to process that they go back and offer tree to people that need it. And it's just as simple as we have permission to offer it. We're going to send you a bill, a binder. We'll issue an endorsement indicating that the coverage was, has been liberalized and that'll attach to your primary policy. And it'll follow form up through your umbrella and excess, which will follow form up right up into the reinsurance trees, which will follow form right up into federal government. And there you go. It's easy as pie. And what does the cost look like comparatively to TRIA? Well, they can. here's the fun part. I don't care. I could give a flying fart. That's for Congress and industry to work out. They can come up with whatever risk share they want. Think about that tornado example. 
Do you want them sending a blind check that you don't need and a blind check your neighbor doesn't deserve? Or do you want everybody to get 20% of their loss, whatever it is, or 80% of their loss, whatever it is? It could be that way. If you're zero, you get 80% of zero. If you're nothing, you get 20% of nothing. And the answer is, I don't care how they do it. I could honestly care. It's not my insurance history to gamble. I think that it's fair to revisit it. I don't think if you're going to, I think if you're going to ask the insurance industry to go back in time and cover something they didn't anticipate covering, I think it's completely fair to go back and look at what the original risk share was. And is that still a risk share? I'm totally with the industry on that. I would be fine if the industry didn't have to pay any of it. It's not about the end who's paying it. It's about how it's paid. Right. That's the thing. People are scared. You can't send Butler $2.6 million when we're looking at losing $40 million. It doesn't work. You have to turn on our insurance so the loss responds the way we needed to respond. Now, look at Butler. We're in the Washington Times today. What if the publicity that we get from all this is so great that we don't lose any enrollment and we actually come out ahead? And now we're getting $2.6 million from the CARE Act that could have gone to your university. Is that fair? Right? Because if you turn on our business interruption insurance and we don't end up having a business interruption, then we don't cost the taxpayers any money. It's brilliant. It's just sure. it's brilliant in its simplicity. It's brilliant in its simplicity. So if we you, don't end up with a business problem, we don't get nothing. But now we're getting $2.6 million, whether it's too much or not enough, and nobody knows. So and they'll never be able to pay it out fast enough to keep up with it. When you look at your plan versus what is being proposed in New Jersey and New York and D.C. or what some other legislation, how does the juxtaposition look? I mean, what, what are the differences and why is the other plan worse or, or better? You would retroactively include pandemics in TRIA just for what New Jersey and these other states are doing alone. That's a good enough reason all by itself, because you can't do that. Because what they're basically doing is they're doing their backdating coverage, but they're doing it in an ad hoc way. Insurance and risk management is all about pooling. So we have a national, so we either have no pool for pandemics or we have a uniform pool for pandemics. But how do you create a pool for pandemics? when some insurers have to cover it retroactively and others don't. Premiums that's collected for business interruption, it would be like paying a sports bet, you know, after, you know, the outcome, right? You, you, the spread, you already collected based on the previous spread. And so you can't go to an insurance carrier and tell them to pay a bet on pandemics and not change the spread. It's not fair. And the reason why you have to do this at the federal level just goes back to what I was saying. I don't care how they do the risk share. I don't care if the insurance rate comes out owing nothing or making money or owing 20%. I honestly don't care. I think that this is the most efficient thing for taxpayers to make sure that people get money they need and people don't get money they don't need. You know, again, I don't want to lose your original question. It's such a stream of thought with all these things going on. Remind me what you originally asked. I was just curious as to why the New Jersey, New York plan was. Oh, yeah. Well, with destabilized markets. I mean, basically, that's what would happen. Yeah. All the insurers in New Jersey would leave or they would be put out of business. And, and it would create so much uncertainty because state after state would do it. And it's just like, how do you want to eat this pill, right? Do you want to swallow one big pill once with the federal government? Or do you want to swallow it state by state, court by court? And, and, and that'll just kill him, be death by a million paper cuts. Makes sense to me. Well, I think you covered all my questions. Uh, very, very interesting. Obviously, a very innovative solution. And congrats to you and your students for coming up with it and getting the the recognition that you deserve here. Well, I appreciate it. I think it's, you know, it's more about the students for me than anything else. I mean, I, you know, I'm not that special of a guy. There's plenty, like I said, there's plenty of people in insurance industry don't have my background that know way more than I do and much love and respect to them. I don't want anybody to come away feeling like, you know, I'm taking a dump on them because I think they're awesome. Everybody, we need them all. I've learned so much from everybody, but that's what this is. It's a team effort. There's been a lot of people, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a professor. I don't have, I don't have any contacts in government. You know, I can, there's a whole other story about how I managed to get this to the president, the vice president of McConnell and Congress in a week. It wasn't me. There's a whole lot of people that, you know, maybe will step forward. Maybe we'll never be allowed to step forward. But anyone can do what I did. 
Any risk manager right now could have done what I did, but they just have a company that they're in the middle of saving. Anybody in the insurance industry could do what I did. They're just in the middle of saving their carrier or their brokerage or their agency. And, and what this is about is creating more centers of thought leadership like Butler University. There's places like Temple University and Indiana State University and Ball State University and Florida State University, all these great, you know, 82 insurance and risk manager programs. But the question is now, not just Professor Finn, but what does Dr. Drennan know? What does Dr. Avalon know? And how do we create more Dr. Drennans and more Dr. Avalas and more places where, you know, I mean, just imagine, I, I came here to start this program eight years ago. Eight years ago, there wasn't a place like Butler where students sat around and thought about black swan events and how to respond to them. And, and frankly, the only reason that exists is because the Spencer Educational Foundation and the Risk and Insurance Management Society puts on this case competition. But, but imagine if they hadn't done that. This idea wouldn't, I didn't think of this idea. This idea exists because some students were really creative and there was a mechanism through RIMS and Spencer for universities to sit down and have a really deep thought about risk in a way that ended up becoming a breaking case of emergency idea. And, and I think we need more of that. That should be the win for this. Is you, you solve The mere side of risk is opportunity. So the only way to get out of this jam is through more opportunity for people. Yeah, it would be nice if the insurance uh, industry got some... Uh... Nice publicity out of uh, out of this deal at the end because there are it, it's a it's a great industry and uh, it's not always the the first one that that people think of when they're graduating from high school or college or anything else. Well, think about it. you know this goes back to covering it. You know, I'll just make this final point, but just imagine how Americans would respond in this moment. You know, imagine if the insurance industry did come out in front of all the microphones with the president, the way a lot of those other businesses did, and said, you know what, guys. We didn't intend to cover this, but we're about indemnifying people. And America's hurting right now, and this is going to hurt us, but we're going to do what's right because we love you all. This is what the insurance industry is about. And if you never respect us before, this is our moment to tell you we're here for you. Do you know how many more policies would be sold? I mean, imagine if pandemics was backstopped by the government, how many more businesses would buy business interruption insurance? I mean, you can't just think about it in terms of what you're going to lose by doing something like this. I mean, think about how much of a hero they would be and how much they would gain. It'd be, I think it'd be more than it ever paid. Absolutely. Well, Zach Finn, thanks again for being with us. Good luck on your continued uh, effort here. I, I can't wait for it to be over. I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs>